Hi, I'm Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, together with my colleague, Dr. Brian Lacey at the Mayo Clinic. And for this month's podcast, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Emil Agarwal, who is currently a third-year GI fellow at Mercer Medical Center in Baltimore and at the University of Maryland Medical School. So Amol, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel. And uh, on behalf of my co-authors, we are really excited that the journal and that the college published our work. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it because there's a good reason why we published this study. We thought it was uh, really interesting and very, very important for our readers and our listeners. So the title of your paper is Off-Label Use of Multi-Target Stool DNA Testing in Primary Care. And since this is not a CME podcast, I will use the term cologar just to get it out of the way. When we talk about multi-target stool DNA testing, we're generally talking about cologard, at least in the United States. Right. And this study was really focused on the use of cologard in primary care with a focus on whether primary care doctors are prescribing this appropriately. But let's talk about what you did and why you did it. So tell us a little bit about the study. The impetus for the study was really anecdotal, meaning we were getting a lot of patients uh, in our colonoscopy unit are referred for a positive multi-target test. And when we reviewed their history, they either had a family history of colon cancer, personal history of colon adenomas, or even a personal history of colon cancer or maybe they were having iron deficiency anemia or blood in the stools, and they were getting a cologuard to have that evaluated, and then they were positive and referred to us for the colonoscopy. Certainly none of those are appropriate indications for the stool test. And it essentially led us to wonder how often is this happening, and we really have no idea how often it's occurring in primary care. We just see the positive test, and so we want to investigate that. So it's a great, uh, very practical study idea that has immediate implications. It's be good to know if it's being used appropriately and it'd be important to know if it's not being used appropriately. And this is an important point to take a step back for a second because there's been validation studies for Cologuard and we know its performance, its sensitivity, its specificity, but these are always done in highly controlled clinical trial settings. And there's a difference between what we find in the clinical trial versus what happens in the real world, as we like to call it. Although this term real world is a funny one, as an aside, because there is no fake world. This is the real world. This is what people are doing in real life when they have access to this cologuard. First question is, you know, in order to do this study, you had to make some definition about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. So just tell us a bit about what methods you used to determine if a fecal DNA was being used appropriately. Absolutely. So, you know, first off, this was a, a single center retrospective study. And the key is, as you said, what is an appropriate indication for this test? And back when the FDA initially approved this in 2014, that was an average risk screening patient age 50 years or older. There have been some changes that we'll talk about, but essentially it's anyone without a history of colon cancer or colon adenomas or a family history of colon cancer or anyone who had a positive stool test in the last six to 12 months. And then finally, anybody with an increased risk of cancer, such as inflammatory bowel disease or polyposis. And so for our study, that is the criteria we applied. Uh, the only caveat to that is since our study, two things have happened. One is the FDA now expanded the use of Cologuard to include age 45 and up. And also uh, several societies, including the college, most recently have expanded the colon cancer eligibility for average risk to include age 45 and up. 
our study was really designed for 50 and up because those changes happen after a study period, but we acknowledge that ages 45 and up uh, now represent the on-label use of this test. So that didn't really affect our results, which we'll get into, but that is an important point to make. Yeah, I was going to say, we might as well cut to the chase on that point before we get into the meat of the result, that you did do a sensitivity analysis, including and then removing people who were aged 45 to 50. And okay. bottom line is, what was it, like five subjects in this study? It was five subjects, and it ended up changing our results by less than a percentage point. Okay, so that's really not an important critique in this study. Though it's a, a great point to make, because it could have been potentially, but that's really not what happened. So why don't we just get right into what you found and sort of the top line result. So what's the main takeaway? Then we can get into some of the details. So we looked at 902 patients over a 12-month period ending in June 2019. And as mentioned, we reviewed each record to see if there was any evidence that there was an off-label indication or more than one off-label indication. And the top-line data is that about 18% of the tests that we analyzed were off-label for at least one reason. And that means they have some indication in the chart that they either needed a diagnostic colonoscopy or they were at high risk for colon cancer and therefore deserved a colonoscopy for screening rather than a stool test. We can go over the different indications for off-label criteria that were met. The second take-home point is that increased age was one of the major risk factors for having an off-label test. For example, if you're 70 to 80 years old, you're much more likely that your test was off-label than if you were a healthy 50-year-old. And why do you think that is? Uh, just jumping ahead to sort of the discussion for a second, because you would think it would be the opposite, that it's older individuals where we need to be really more vigilant and not and use second-tier tests, right? I think that's a great point. Uh, there's a couple of points in there. One is uh, that we know that the false positive rate for this test is higher in older patients, uh, which means that for all the more reason that they may want to consider using a colonoscopy for their screening test, they are much more likely to have a false positive test. And the reason for that, as I understand it, is that older patients are more likely to shed DNA in the stool, leading to a false positive test. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Why is it more likely that they have a false positive test? I just, why is it more likely that they have a off-label test? Going through life, they've accumulated more indications for a test. Maybe they've had colonoscopies with the adenome in the past. They have now identified a family history that they didn't have at age 50 of colon cancer. So I think there's a number of reasons why older patients are more likely to have an off-label test, as well as more likely to have a false positive test. So that's sort of a red flag right there in your results, that the fecal DNA testing was inappropriately applied in these older patients. In the paper, and by the way, I recommend if you're interested in this important paper, you take a look at the paper because we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it is a brief communication. So it's not very long. And there's a table two in the paper that breaks down the criteria. It's really striking just to see that people who had GI bleeding, who had chronic diarrhea, iron deficiency anemia, even a positive fit test, there are people like that where the PCP said, yeah, you know what? That sounds like a good test for Cologuard. And I'm certain the manufacturers would be appalled to know that primary care doctors are thinking that's a good time to use this test. So tell us more about some of the findings and nuances in that table, just so we get a feeling for like, what are the indications uh, when, when primary care doctors are using this inappropriately? Absolutely. And, and for me, that was the most interesting data that we discovered were the indications or the criteria that were actually off-label. For one thing, I will say that the, the manufacturer did reject tests that were done for patients age 90 and up. So I did see that a lot in reviewing the data. 
that we would get back a rejection from the manufacturer from ages 90 and up because they knew it wouldn't be covered and that it was not appropriate. So that is something that I think we can really appreciate. A lot of these other indications, uh, the tests still did get run. And so I think, you know, the way we broke it down in the table is whether a screening colonoscopy was indicated, whether a diagnostic colonoscopy was indicated, or whether no screening was indicated, meaning they had already been up to date already and they didn't need any test order. And by far the most common off-label criteria that was found was that screening was not indicated, meaning they had already had a colonoscopy within the last 10 years and maybe that record got lost or the patient forgot or the provider forgot. So they just- And, and, and if I can interrupt, we, we do know some providers question whether a colonoscopy every 10 years is enough. And yeah. so I do certainly see this in practice where there'd be kind of like this leakage from the guidelines to say, well, we'll wait 10 years, but we're going to do some colo guards in the meantime. That is very possible. And this was supposed to be a study of provider behavior, but we don't really know what was happening in the office visit and how much the patient wanted test of some kind. Maybe they just saw a commercial for the stool test on TV and they said, hey, I know I had a colonoscopy just six years ago but let's just check it out just to be sure. And I get that. It's not really a designed to be a criticism, but I do think our study is designed to just raise awareness of this issue. There's one thing you found that really struck me, and it was among the patients who had a positive fecal DNA test. And then you followed them to see, okay, well, did they get a colonoscopy or not? And if they did, how long did it take before they finally got that colonoscopy? What did you discover there? Uh, that was also a very interesting point as well. And the median time of a colonoscopy after the Colocard test was obtained and was positive was 78 days. And the median time of overall between the initial stool test and a colonoscopy was 113 days. So we're talking two months, three months, four months after a positive test or five, six months after the screening was initiated before the patients are getting a colonoscopy. And that is a major, major delay. Certainly, in the age of COVID, we're seeing those delays even further. And yes. a lot of people are getting the stool tests during the pandemic, and maybe they're positive, but they don't necessarily want to come in for the colonoscopy, and then there's even more of a delay. So that is a major issue, is sort of kicks the can down the road. A positive test certainly needs a colonoscopy, but we have plenty of patients that were going more than six months before getting their follow-up colonoscopy. And that can certainly delay the diagnosis of colon cancer. So, you know, this is one of those hidden facts, I guess, that is a result of just everyday practice that isn't necessarily discussed when we talk about stool-based tests, whether it's FIT or DNA testing. The time to definitive diagnosis, if you do have a cancer, is, can be delayed. And in this case, for months and months, that doesn't mean that will be reproduced in every healthcare system. So one, one question is, why does it take so long? But I can see how it, it could, whether COVID or no COVID. There's just life gets in the way. And that's, of course, one of the benefits of getting the colonoscopy is you just, you get your answers right there. You don't have to, you don't wait months to get something scheduled or to get up the energy to do another test. And then you also found that some people had a positive fecal DNA test and never got a colonoscopy. So when you added it all together, you found about 21% of the time there was sort of inappropriate guard based CRC screening in this population. And that's really striking. So let's sort of jump to what does this mean? And what are we going to do about it? Because I'm sure, like I said, the manufacturer presumably would be appalled to learn that this is happening. And it's not necessarily their fault. But on the other hand, what is the educational requirements for a manufacturer or for a GI society like the ACG to make sure that our colleagues 
not only in GI, but in primary care, understand whether, when, and how to use this test. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's a great point, and certainly on the heels of colorectal cancer awareness month from March, very relevant. I think the important point here is ultimately that colonoscopy is the colon cancer prevention test and the stool-based tests are colon cancer detection tests. And I think that is an easily lost point uh, when you're in the room with the patient in a primary care office and your EPIC is just telling you to get colon cancer screening done one way or another. And so I can understand the pressures that these providers face, but uh, I do think it's incumbent upon us as GI providers to provide that education both for the primary care and for the patients that colonoscopy remains a first-line test and a fit fecal test is a second-line test. It's easy to conflate the two, and the reality is if we're able to convince patients to undergo colonoscopy, that will uh, not only be the most durable screening test, it can last up to 10 years, but the most effective one because, as you know, we're able to remove polyps. And I think the education needs to happen from both fronts, provider and patient. Since I've done this study, I do find myself trying to hammer that in a little more when I speak with the patients before or after the procedure. For example, if we do discover polyps and they turn out to be adenomas, when I talk to the patients about it, I'm now emphasizing, hey, by the way, you're no longer eligible for stool-based testing. You should continue with colonoscopy moving forward. And so I have been able to change my practice in, in subtle ways like that. Well, you know, we always say that the best test is the test that gets done. That's a common saying in colon cancer, any kind of cancer screening that we'd rather, uh, generally rather, a test be done, maybe a suboptimal test or performed in a suboptimal way than no testing whatsoever. But there is a fine line there if we're misusing tests and causing harm as a result of that. Either inappropriate overuse or inappropriate underuse of tests, both can have consequences, not just clinical consequences, but health economic consequences too. So some of the results you have today are showing us that, at least in this health system, in this one study, and it would be interesting to reproduce it in other health systems, but it suggests that you know, there is an appropriate use of this test. And when we look at, for example, a cost-effectiveness analysis that might have been published, do these models really account for how the test is being used in real life? Or are they reflecting kind of a pristine clinical trial type of performance behavior? And so these real-life data, again, a funny term, real-life data, but these real-life data are really important, I think, for us as a GI community to understand, to communicate with the manufacturer, and to communicate with uh, our colleagues in primary care so we can all jointly determine what is the best path forward to make sure this valuable test, make no mistake about it, this, in my opinion, is a valuable test, a very important component of our screening armamentarium, but it needs to be used appropriately. And so what we're seeing now is this sort of pendulum that is sort of swinging back too far, perhaps. And this is a sign that we need to bring the pendulum back towards the middle so that we know how to use this test appropriately. I wanna thank you for your time today and for publishing this paper, and especially congratulate you as a third year GI fellow, not only for doing a great job in this podcast, if I might say so myself, but also for just taking the time to put together a very important, it's simple in that it's a descriptive study, but it's, it's a really a profound study that I think has great implications for our fields. Thanks to you and your colleagues at Mercer Medical Center and the University of Maryland Medical School for sharing your, your results with us. Well, thank you again for having us. 
So on behalf of the co-editors and my editor-in-chief, Brian Lacey, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, I want to thank everyone for listening to this month's podcast and stay tuned for next month. And until then, this is Brennan Spiegel signing off and be well. Be well.